One of the conspiracy theories floating around is that Lee Harvey Oswald was a double agent working for the Soviets, a Manchurian candidate named after the 1962 movie about an American POW who is brainwashed while held hostage by Soviet scientists during the Korean War. He is programmed to be an unwitting assassin in an international plot hatched by Klaus, his mother. I know you will never entirely comprehend this, Raymond, but you must believe I did not know it would be you. I served them. I fought for them. I'm on the point of winning for them the greatest foothold they will ever have in this country. Had they paid me back by taking your soul away from you. I told them to build me an assassin. I wanted a killer from a world filled with killers and they chose you. Because they thought it would bind me closer to them. That is Angela Lansbury in her Oscar-nominated role as the assassin's mom. Her plan is to have her son shoot the presidential candidate during the national convention, and her husband, VP candidate and senator, would rise up and make a rousing speech and be swept into the presidency. But now we have come almost to the end. One last step. And then when I take power, they will be pulled down and ground into debt for what they did to you. And what they did in so contemptuously underestimating me. Another mother who deserves an Oscar is Marguerite Oswald. With the entire press corps watching her, she buries her son on November 25th after he is shot by Jack Ruby. As the country mourns the death of their young president by her son, Marguerite proclaims. Lee Harvey Oswald, my son, even after his death, has done more for his country than any other living human being. Uh, but she took it to a different level. She was convinced, I think, that uh, you know the world was against her. She had a chip on her shoulder. Uh, and she was uh, angry. That was Stephen Beschloss, author of The Gunman and His Mother, Lee Harvey Oswald, Marguerite Oswald, and The Making of an Assassin. To the very end of her life, she professed her son's innocence. Here is Marguerite on a Canadian TV program right after the Warren Commission's report on the presidential assassination a report that put all the blame on her son, the lone gunman. Well, my investigation shows nothing other than that Lee was a patsy, and this is a frame-up. I don't say I'm right. Who's framing I, him, Mrs. Oswald? Well, I wished I had the time to go into the complete story, and you must understand that there's many, many uh, aspects to this case, that my investigation shows that our trouble is in our State Department that there are a few men in our State Department who wanted President Kennedy out of the way. I'm a very unpopular person. Do you really believe this, Mrs. Oswald? What if Marguerite is hinting here at something else she knew? What if there was a Patsy, someone who looked like Lee, who shared the same beliefs 
as Lee Harvey Oswald. Even served at Oswald in the Marines, and like Raymond in the movie The Manchurian Candidate, was brainwashed to be the second Oswald. What if the mother of history was telling everyone not to believe the mother of all lies? History, after all, is the story of twins, dualities, one obedient and good, the other stealthy and bad. I am Andrei Kodrascu, and in this podcast we try to untangle the weird connection between Lee Harvey Oswald and Carrie Wendell Thornley, the second Oswald. Can the assertion of a psychic psycho mother be the reality while the Warren Commission is promoting mass delusion? Fiction and reality change places in history more often than not. Here comes Oswald down the hall again. You buy that rifle. Right. That's as fast as you people have been given, but I emphatically deny these charges. I'm just a patsy. A few days later, Oswald is shot and killed while being transferred to the county jail. They say dead men tell no tales, but this dead man leaves many unanswered questions. Hey, He's been shot. He's been shot. Ray Oswald has been shot. There's a man with a gun. It's absolute panic. Absolute panic here in the basement of Dallas Police Headquarters. Detectives have their... But Lee Harvey Oswald did not stand trial shortly after 11 that Sunday morning. With half a hundred newsmen, three television crews, and 70 police on hand, he in turn was fatally wounded as publicly as any man in history. This unanswered question gave birth to thousands of conspiracy theories. The invasive and aggressive bush blooming like Hadzo in our American minds to this day. The conspiracy mindset was not new to the American mind. It smoldered like a brush fire under the high-minded architecture of America's violent past when it forged its republic. One of the early examinations of this phenomena was by Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Richard Hofstadter, who wrote an essay titled The Paranoid Style in American Politics. This is, this is a great piece of trivia. Um, Richard Hofstadter originally delivered the first version of The Paranoid Style as a lecture in 1963, on the day before the Kennedy assassination. So that was a one-two punch right there for a modern conspiracy culture. That was Jesse Walker, author of The United States of Paranoia, A Conspiracy Theory. Hofstadter, a Cold War liberal, examines the totality of American history up to the modern time. Hofstadter writes... American politics has often been the arena for angry minds. I believe that there is a style of mind that is far from new and that is not necessarily right-wing. I call it the paranoid style, simply because no other word adequately evokes the sense of heated exaggeration, suspiciousness, and conspiratorial fantasy. Well, I think Hofstetter got a lot right. Um, he argued that there's this strain in American history 
of the dark, irrational, anti-intellectual forces. And he said, if you go back to the 1790s, you can see uh, this hysteria about the Illuminati. In the 1830s, there were the anti-Masons, then there were the anti-Catholics. Then there were Americans who blamed uh, bankers and Jews for the depression of the 1890s. That was Professor Catherine Olmsted, who wrote Real Enemies, Conspiracy Theories and American Democracy, World War I to 9-11. And he said, you can see the same language being used over and over again that sees um, not just conspiracies happening here and there in history, but history as a conspiracy. History as the motive, conspiracy as the motive force in history. The assassination of American presidents is an ideology in itself, neither conservative nor liberal. Abraham Lincoln's murder by a Southern Confederate sympathizer is still floating in its own cloud of conspiracies. President McKinley was assassinated by Leon Cholgash, an anarchist inspired by Emma Goldman, which led to the punitive rise of J. Edgar Hoover, the founder of the FBI. Ronald Reagan was shot by the son of a capitalist in love with an actress. Right and left are unstable labels within this tragic ideology. So I, I find it very hard to read that essay as something other than a, a product of its times. I mean, the early 1960s were a time of great fear of the radical right, groups like the John Burke Society and the Minutemen. Um, and of course, this went into overdrive even more after the Kennedy assassination because of this initial drive to associate Kennedy's death with the far right. Um, it happened in Dallas. There was this whole kind of, it became a cliche that Dallas killed uh, John F. Kennedy. You know, the apparent assassin turns out to have been a guy who defected to the Soviet Union. They, people had to readjust uh, some of their narratives, but people kept coming back to the idea that maybe the radical right was in some way behind this. Um, and a lot of the conspiracy theories have involved that idea as well. But in 1961, everything seemed to be going right for all of our characters. Lee Harvey Oswald defected to the Soviet Union and was living a comfortable life in Minsk, working as a machinist in a radio and electronic factory. He received a government-subsidized, fully-furnished studio apartment in an apparatchik building and an additional supplement to his factory pay, which allowed him to have a comfortable standard of living by Soviet standards. All of his wishes of being a Soviet man were coming true, in a bourgeois sort of way. Not what he had originally envisioned, but he enjoyed it all the same. Let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike that the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans. A young and vibrant John F. Kennedy was elected president of the United States and promised hope to a new generation of Americans. Born in this century, tempered by war, disciplined by a hard and bitter peace, proud of our ancient heritage, and unwilling to witness or permit the slow undoing of those human rights 
to which this nation has always been committed and to which we are committed today at home and around the world. But unresolved history would haunt the first months of his presidency. On April 17, 1961, 1,400 Cuban exiles launched what became a botched invasion at the Bay of Pigs on the south coast of Cuba. Once the playground for gangsters and corrupt corporate interests, Cuba had fallen to Fidel Castro's revolution and was quickly becoming Latin America's center of socialist opposition to the U.S. Cuban revolutionary troops such as these have invaded Castro's leftist island fortress, reportedly rallied by a mysterious coded radio message. Alert, alert, look well at the rainbow. The fish will be running very soon. Cuban exiles trained by the CIA in the waning days of the Eisenhower administration landed on the island, but were met with stiff resistance, and the invasion went horribly wrong. Fidel's grip is threatened as word of some defections comes out, but the fiery bearded Castro is hardly short on words as he attacks what he calls United States imperialism and calls on sister Latin American republics to aid Cuba. I have emphasized before that this was a struggle of Cuban patriots against a Cuban dictator. When the plot was revealed, Kennedy canceled an airstrike, leaving many of the rebels to fend for themselves, either dying or being captured by Castro. While we could not be expected to hide our sympathies, we made it repeatedly clear that the armed forces of this country would not intervene in any way. Many Cuban exiles and their CIA-backed organizers blamed Kennedy for this disaster and never forgave him for it. Meanwhile, Kerry Thornley, discharged from the Marines with a stack full of notes and his unfinished book about his pal Lee Harvey Oswald, was in New Orleans, determined to make a mark for himself in a city known for its literary bohemia. The late 50s, early 60s was also a heated ground for ideological debate. Kerry read and was inspired by the work of Ayn Rand, a Russian exile who turned many unhappy young Americans into right-wing libertarians. Lurking behind her capitalism uber-alice ideology was the mystical inspiration of Ares, the goddess of chaos, the divine Discordia. Carey had tapped into another deep strain of the American psyche since his high school days, the absurdity and power of pseudo-mystical evangelism. Well, uh, I wrote my first serious poetry after I got out of the Marines in 1961 when I went to New Orleans. And uh, at that time, I was pretty much of a barroom poet. I used to not only uh, read my poems in, in bar rooms to my friends and so on and so forth, I used to often write them there. The signature dish of New Orleans is gumbo, a generous mix of seemingly incompatible, violent and spicy ingredients. Gulf of Mexico shrimp, swamp crawfish, Spanish rice, 
African okra and Tabasco Island hot sauce. The city itself is a cultural gumbo that blends Spanish and French colonial rule and brief pirate control until it became part of the United States, this country's greatest real estate deal. The northernmost point of the Caribbean trade in sugar, rum, and slaves, the city was an ideological gumbo, always ready to boil over in the all-night bars and cafes. I lived in New Orleans for 25 years and felt very much like Baron von Riesenstein, a German emigrant who wrote The Mysteries of New Orleans, a novel about the terror and violent beauty of the city. I spent many hours in the Napoleon House, built for housing the exiled French emperor from his Isle of Exile by a failed conspiracy hatched here. How many failed conspiracies did my friend Jimmy Nolan and I hatch here over the years? Uh, my name is James Nolan. I'm, uh, I was born here in 1947. I come from uh, five generations of New Orleanians. Um, my French Creole ancestors first came here in the 1850s. My Irish ancestors came here in the 1840s as part of the, the Irish diaspora. Speaking of the early 60s, Jimmy recalled. And at that point, everyone went to the, what at that time went to Cater Street, was actually the open port city filled with sailors and pimps and prostitutes and card sharks and drug dealers. And we went to La Casa de los Marinos. We went to the Greek bars, the, the Athenian room, the Acropolis. And... Um, it was a very um, culturally stimulating uh, experience to grow up at that time here, although I did think it was very dark and uh, the political tensions were very strong. At that time, the French Quarter was, was pretty much ruled by the mafia. The transient and underbelly of New Orleans fit Kerry perfectly. Here you can be a rabble-rouser, a loud mouth, and have outlandish ideas, and people would not think you weird or different. Conspiracies are woven in the fabric of New Orleans. Sandra London, who befriended Carrie in the early 1990s, recorded her friend. She recounts one of the stories he told her. Carrie wants to sit in the midst of the action and write while he rants. Okay, so he's in New Orleans, so he goes down to the Napoleon and uh, he sits and writes, and he goes to Carlos Castillo's bar, and he sits and he writes and he rants loudly that he thinks Kennedy should be assassinated. And that was because of Kennedy's uh, position against Big Steel. Okay, <laughs> I mean, who knew, right? Uh, I was just being obnoxious, walking around proselytizing for Ayn Rand, uh, and uh, you know, being pretty much chip on my shoulder, willing to start an argument, very judgmental, wanted to be a, a radical capitalist revolutionary. Kerry Thornley, a 20-something young man looking for attention, found his perfect place here. Like the characters in Ayn Rand's novels, he wanted to be a heroic being be a part of a grand and noble adventure, set things right, or just dream, as had Walt Whitman 
Baron von Riesenstein, and me. The people that Carrie met in New Orleans that were led to him by his sitting out there ranting about killing Kennedy while he wrote about Lee Harvey Oswald eventually included a character by, known by the street name of Slim Brooks. Now, who was he? What did he look like? And Slim was a seaman and dried off with tuberculosis, a few years older than I was, and considered himself much wiser. Gave me a tour of the French Quarter and showed me around and all that. Suffice it to say, it was, he was a very sketchy character, number one. Number two, he fit perfectly the profile of an intelligence operative. So, we'll start with that. Uh, eventually, Slim introduced him to someone he called brother-in-law. And uh, then he introduced me to this guy, this weird, bald-headed Nazi called his brother-in-law, uh, who came into town just right after the Bay of Pigs invasion, about two weeks later. He didn't say, I want you to meet my brother-in-law. He said, you need to meet brother-in-law. Just to interrupt myself, and years later, I learned from organized crime that brother-in-law is a very common slang and simply means that they're part of the, the family, uh, of the organized crime family. And uh, he said, his brother-in-law's name was Gary. And he said, Gary, this is Carrie. Carrie, this is Gary. And then he said, he doesn't like Kennedy either. Uh -huh. And Gary said, uh, Carrie, he says, in fact, I think John F. Kennedy is a menace to this country and that he ought to be assassinated. And that was the way I felt. And I shook hands with him. I said, yes. And uh, uh, Slim said, uh, oh, goody, I was a catalyst. You know, like that. You know. The reason why Carrie remembered this important first meeting and what was discussed was because it happened two weeks after his birthday which was also the beginning of the botched Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba, April 17, 1961. In New Orleans, tensions and anger towards Kennedy were high. The city was full of hot-headed Cubans, believing Kennedy betrayed them. Here is my friend Jimmy again. And at that time I was reading Ayn Rand, so it all made a little bit of sense to me. And um, I remember there were, were um, conspiratorial whispers of somehow uh, defeating the communist conspiracy, and that many of the people there were Spanish speakers who I now assume were Cubans. Um, uh, it was all very mysterious and weird to me, and at one point I realized that before I had even grown a mustache, I was probably part of a conspiracy to assassinate the United States of America. Um, I, I, it's, it, it was a very strange experience, and of course I disowned it very, very shortly after. So, who were Slim Brooks and brother-in-law? Were they hotheads letting off steam in the tradition of New Orleans lawless ranting? Or were they working for the mafia? Or some other shadowy outfit? part of a clandestine underground group of right-wing nuts angry at Kennedy. 
The brand new president had sure stirred up a lot of wasps' nests. He was Catholic, Irish, liberal, well-educated, handsome, and young. The problem with all of the conspiracy theories swirling around the Kennedy assassination is that it is hard to agree to one or dispute others. They all seem plausible and ridiculous at the same time. But in New Orleans, they can sound almost reasonable. Here is what Kerry says about his new pals. One of these men was named Slim Brooks. I believe he was Jerry Milton Brooks, uh, who was head of the Anti-Communist League of the Caribbean and who worked for Guy Bannister, uh, who was the uh, coordinator of anti-Castro activities in New Orleans. Both Jerry Milton Slim Brooks and Guy Bannister were real people and very vocal about their anti-Kennedy views. Guy Bannister and his activities would become the central focus of New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison's investigation into the Kennedy assassination in the late 60s. Who was brother-in-law? I believe the other man may have been Edward Howard Hunt, the Watergate burglar. I met these uh, guys uh, right around the time of the Bay of Pigs invasion. I met Slim just before. E. Howard Hunt was one of President Nixon's infamous plumbers, caught breaking into the Democratic National Committee at the Watergate office building to plant listening bugs. The Democratic National Committee is located in the Watergate office building. The burglars forced a stairwell door, then taped its latch open. The door, now part of police evidence, was noticed by one of the guards employed by the Watergate complex. At first, the police found nothing. Then they spied five men crouching behind some desks. Hunt joined the Central Intelligence Agency in 1949 and retired in 1970 to later work for the executive office. This is Hunt testifying before U.S. Senate's Watergate hearings in 1973. During the 21 years I spent with CIA, I was engaged in intelligence, covert action, and counterintelligence operations. I was trained in the techniques of physical and electronic surveillance, photography, document forgery, and surreptitious entries into guarded premises for photography and installation of electronic devices. I participated in and had the responsibility for a number of such entries, and I had knowledge of many more. To put it unmistakably, I was an intelligence officer, a spy for the government of the United States. This guy was uh, bald-headed. Uh, in that respect, he did not look like Hunt at that time. In every other respect, he did. Uh, he usually wore uh, a white shirt and, and slacks. Uh, and he claimed that he was from a Midwestern uh, German-American boom family. And he'd been a Nazi all his life. He claimed he had served with naval intelligence on uh, Guam during World War II. Here is how Hunt describes himself. I was born in 1918 at Hamburg, New York. My father was a lawyer and judge my mother a pianist and housewife. I was educated in the public schools of Florida and New York. 
and in 1940 graduated from Brown University. Six weeks later, I volunteered to serve in the armed forces. While a destroyer officer on the North Atlantic convoy run before Pearl Harbor, I was injured and medically discharged. This doesn't match Kerry's account of brother-in-law, but give it enough bourbon and New Orleans magic, and who can say? He further uh, claimed that his name was Gary Kirsten, K-I-R-S-T-E-I-N, if I remember correctly. Uh, Gary uh, was introduced to me uh, as someone who didn't like Kennedy either by, by Slim. Possibly an alias, one of many Hunt's aliases, or maybe his real name was Gary Kirsten. And Kerry mistook him for Hunt. It was late at the Bourbon House, and the air was redolent with the perfume of sweet olive and smoke. The, the most pronounced thing I remember is his bald head. However, I also remember a protruding lower lip. He smoked a pipe a lot, and it was almost as if his lower lip had been deformed by pipe smoking. That was an unusual feature. That is Hunt's distinct look, the pipe smoke, but hardly a smoking gun. In all of the photos and film of him, he has a full head of hair with a receding hairline. It is hard to believe Hunt would shave his head just for these meetings with Carrie, and then return to his family with a full head of hair? Or is it? Hair is very much like Spanish moss, an almost evanescent growth hanging from live oaks in humid southern nights. While Carey worked on his novel and doing odd jobs, he would meet his new friends. Something about Carey intrigued them and the book he was writing. The habit became for brother-in-law to take Carey out in the country, outside New Orleans, to an area that seemed to be Harahan, Louisiana, and there was a trailer. And they would go in there, and they would always give him a cup of uh, lukewarm, nasty-tasting tea. Carrie speculates it was Jimson weed, because he entered an alter state. Okay, During the time he sat there during these sessions with brother-in-law. Uh, he never said very much. He, his brother-in-law, did most of the talking and much of it was in a uh, way of asking me questions and telling me things that he wanted me for some reason that wasn't clear to me at the time to remember. The young Kerry said he did not believe in conspiracies. A disciple of the Ayn Rand machine logic could not admit them. He thought he had met some like-minded people, and this was how one went about shaping the world. But under all that, Eris, the goddess of chaos, pursued her own agenda. Some of these discussions about the assassination of JFK may have sounded like oddball riffing, but who was seriously listening? So you, you were actually discussing assassination with him? We were discussing assassination. We were discussing solving assassinations also, which I didn't understand. Mm -hmm. See, he was setting me up. Mm -hmm to look like I had solved the assassination by using some other guy's name and talking to me about assassinating Kennedy 
you think you were in a conspiracy, but you didn't believe I didn't it. believe there were conspiracies. Yeah, much less that I belonged to one. You didn't, I didn't realize that what you were doing was conspiring? Uh, the conspiracy theory of history, as far as I was concerned, was garbage that McCarthyites believed in. We intellectually respectable right-wingers that were into Ayn Rand understood that it was ideas, not conspiracies, that moved the world. You know? okay. So. Uh, during the whole time that Kerry lived in New Orleans, he said that he had no contact with his Marine pal and book protagonist, Lee Harvey Oswald. He knew nothing about his whereabouts or his life in the Soviet Union. His life after his defection, he said, was a complete mystery to him. Speaking as a writer, if I was writing a novel, I would follow my character to his grave. Carrie's lack of interest in Oswald sounds strange to me. Uh, this is Mrs. Marguerite Oswald speaking, mother of the accused assassin of President John F. Kennedy, Lee Harvey Oswald. After the assassination, Mother Oswald put out a vinyl record, partially to raise money for herself, but also to tell the world about the real Lee, her son that she knew who was made a scapegoat by evil forces. I had no contact with Lee after his so-called affection to Russia for 20 months. Then I had extenuating circumstances that I thought was extenuating, so I made a personal trip to Washington, D.C., which was in January of 1961. I was in conference with four state officials, and approximately four weeks later, I received the first notification from the State Department of my son being alive, and also his address. She read letters from her son when he was living in Minsk, mostly mundane correspondence, but also about Oswald's desire to return to the U.S. Her boy loved his country. Why else did he want to return home? Oswald wrote in his diary in January 1961, I am starting to reconsider my desire about staying. The work is drab. The money I get has nowhere to be spent. No nightclubs or bowling alleys. No places of recreation except the trade union dancers. I have had enough. Oswald's dreams of being part of a grand revolution involved his grandiose delusion that he would be a key player in the transformation of a new society. He ran instead into the Soviet brick wall of complacency and worst of all, uniformity. He was just a small cog in a machine he did not understand. The Soviet Union was a lot more like George Orwell's 1984 than the utopian socialist paradise he may have thought he wanted to live in. Oswald wrote to Richard Snyder at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, the same person to whom Oswald earlier declared that he wanted to renounce his U.S. citizenship. Back then, he threatened Snyder that he would share U.S. secrets to the Soviets. Some scholars don't think Oswald had many secrets to share. His closeness to the U-2 spy planes and radar was not as close as he thought. It was likely that Snyder saw an immature young man making a fool of himself. 
Oswald brazenly requested the return of his American passport, and also dropping any charges against him. Snyder asked Oswald to come to Moscow from Minsk to begin the process. That was a delaying tactic, born of either Snyder's compassion for a confused, angry young man, or something more calculated. While waiting for an answer from Moscow, Oswald fell in love, or just in bed, with Marina Prusakova, a 19-year-old pharmacology student. Shortly after, they were married. In the beginning of 1962, he had a special announcement for his mother. Dear mother, well, I have a little six-pound daughter, June Marina Oswald, born at 10 a.m. February the 15th. How about that? Marina feels okay. She only took an hour and a half to give birth at the hospital. The possibility of our coming to the United States are very good, although, of course, it'll be another couple of months. Marina's exit visa to leave the USSR is good until December 1st, 1962, so we have no worries about the visa running out before everything is arranged. The American Embassy in Moscow sent me an application for a loan, which I requested, so they will make the money available to us as soon as everything is arranged for Marina. If it was taking Oswald quite a while to get permission to leave the Soviet Union while he was still single, bringing with him to the U.S. his wife and child was a more complex matter. In addition to the approval of the U.S. Embassy, he now needed permission from the Soviet state. He also had to raise the money to pay for the trip. He got a grudging repatriation loan from the U.S. Embassy, but worried that the U.S. government might prosecute him for treason. He needed Snyder's reassurance on that. A number of formal letters were exchanged between Oswald and Snyder. And then there was Russian bureaucracy. In Moscow alone, the distance between the U.S. Embassy and the enlisted ministry in the Kremlin was possibly greater than that between Minsk and Moscow. Nonetheless, these obstacles were overcome with astonishing results. Conspiracy scholars speculated that Oswald received help from either the KGB or CIA, but neither allegation could be proven. This is Lee's last letter to me. Dear Mother, well, here we are in Moscow getting ready to leave for the USA. I'll be sending a telegram or otherwise informing you as to where we shall embark and so forth. Everything is okay, so don't worry about us. We shall be leaving from Holland by ship for the U.S. on June 4th. However, I expect to stay over in New York for a day or so and also Washington, D.C. for sightseeing. Love, see you soon, Marina and Lee. Back in New Orleans, Kerry Thornley, the author of the fictional Oswald, received a clipping from the Los Angeles Times from his mother. The article was about Oswald's return to the USA. Thornley later said, I did not expect him to become disillusioned, certainly not with the Soviet Union. I am not, of course, sure that he did become disillusioned with it. It just seemed unlike for him to come back to this country when he said he would never live in either 
as a capitalist or as a worker. Kerry Thornley was on to something he intuitively drew from New Orleans itself. In the city of masks, you can never take anything at face value. How did Oswald change his mind so quickly? It complicated his fictional character. Oswald's defection made a perfect ending to Kerry's novel, The Idol Warriors. Oswald's return called for a sequel or for a Flaubertian twist that Kerry, intelligent as he was, was unlikely to possess. Uh, the thing I remember most about the French Quarter is, is the, the time sense there was, was extremely strange. Time went by very slowly in the French Quarter, and I guess it was because so much was always happening. Uh, somebody would say, did that just happen last week? It seems like it was 10 years ago. And it seems like the three years that I spent in the French Quarter was 30 years. It's really, uh, and I, it's, it's never been that way anywhere else that I've been, and I still don't understand exactly why it was that way. Time does work differently in New Orleans, but not in the rest of the world. In the middle of October 1962, the two great nuclear superpowers stood toe-to-toe when the U.S., discovered nuclear missiles being stationed in Cuba by the Soviet Union. But now further action is required, and it is underway, and these actions may only be the beginning. We will not prematurely or unnecessarily risk the course of worldwide nuclear war in which even the fruits of victory would be ashes in our mouth. But neither will we shrink from that risk at any time it must be faced. I have directed that the following initial steps be taken immediately. First, to halt this offensive buildup, a strict quarantine on all offensive military equipment under shipment to Cuba is being initiated. The 13-day standoff would bring the world close to nuclear war. I heard the news of the coming apocalypse on the Voice of America in Romania when I was seven years old. The U.S. threw up a steel fence, prepared to stop any vessel carrying materials of war. In Cuba itself, 100,000 men were put under emergency orders as they had been during past invasion scares. The waterfront in Havana and along other parts of the coast bristled with gun emplacements as the Cuban regime waited to see what their bosses in the Kremlin were to do. Cuba became the focus of world attention. Here centered the most critical threat of global war since the surrender of Germany 17 years ago. Like all citizens of the Soviet Empire, we're glued every night to our shortwave radios with the lights off to hear the news from the land of imperialist criminals and workers butchers as our propaganda called Americans. They retreat to Moscow. Russian ships steam out from Cuban ports with their decks loaded with missiles the Soviets are withdrawing under pressure from the New World. It's one of the last chapters in the offensive threat from Cuba that led the United States to throw a quarantine around that island and force the Russians to dismantle their medium-range rocket installations. U.S. planes and picket ships have counted 42 rockets on Russian-bound ships. But still unresolved is the question of the jet bombers in Cuba. Castro claims they belong to him and that he will not give them up. The U.S. insists the Russians must remove them before the quarantine will be lifted.
This was the high point for President Kennedy, who stood firm against Soviet and Cuban aggression. The world was at the midnight hour of nuclear war, but Kennedy did not blink and was widely admired even by seven-year-olds like myself. Little did he or I know that merely one year later, television would break it to us that the savior of the world was shot dead in Texas. And, uh, our last conversation about killing Kennedy occurred two weeks before the assassination on the weekend. And uh, as Slim and I got up to leave, brother-in-law said, uh, there's only uh, one remaining question, and that's who to frame for. Brother-in-law said, uh, I figure I'll frame some jailbird. I says, why do you need to frame somebody? And he said, people need answers. And I said, oh, I don't think you should frame a jailbird. And uh, he said, well, Carrie, who would you suggest frame? And he was, uh, at that point, he, he smirked and he looked down at his shoes. He was uh, uh, obviously aware of what I was going to say, which was, oh, why don't you frame some communist? Two weeks later, Kennedy was assassinated. In Dallas, Texas this morning, President Kennedy and Governor Connolly of Texas shot as their motorcade proceeded from Dallas airport to downtown Dallas, where the president was scheduled to make a speech. The assassin perhaps succeeded where it is that he did in killing President Kennedy. A television newsman, Hal Luff, said that he looked up just after the shot was fired and saw a rifle being withdrawn from a fifth or sixth floor window of a nearby building. He said a policeman fell to the ground, pulled his pistol and yelled, get down, probably to attempt to return the shots. Uh, it was like the main character of my book jumped up off the pages and shot this president that I'd wanted assassinated anyway. It was a very weird feeling of like being very close to the, to the crime without actually being connected to it at the time. What happened to Lee Harvey Oswald from June 1962 when he returned to the United States with a Russian wife and daughter to the tragic day on November 22nd, 1963 with the assassination of President Kennedy? Here is historian Peter Savadnik. One of the things I find so intriguing about the Oswald story is that I don't think Oswald had any intention of being this. I don't think Oswald mapped out any kind of trajectory. I, I think this was a matter of uh, an awful upbringing coupled with a great deal of uh, bad luck, uh, not a lot of money, and and you know, sort of the the accident of history and and his place in the world that leads that leads to or led to this this kind of awful uh, intersection. A woman called in on the phone and said, "Is there anybody there who can give me a ride to Dallas?" And I said, "Well, lady, we're not running a taxi here, and besides, the president's been shot." And she said, "Yes, I heard it on the radio. I think my son is the one that they have arrested." And it was Lee Harvey Oswald's mother. She lived out on the west side of Fort Worth. That's a young Bob Schiffer, a junior reporter at Fort Worth Star Telegram. Uh, I wrote down her address. Another reporter and I went out to that address. There she stood on the curb. 
Uh, she got in the back seat with me. He drove and uh, I interviewed her on the way to Dallas. It's about 30 miles, about an hour it took us to get there. You know, she was, she was a deranged person is what I later came to conclude. I mean, we were in the car. The president had not been dead two hours. And she was talking about no one would feel sorry for her. They'd feel sorry for his wife and they'd give her money and uh, that she would starve to, dread, uh, to death. I mean, it was not about the president. It, would be, it almost was not even about her son. It, it, it was all about her. You know, the, the years that followed, um, she devoted uh, all of it to making money off of uh, her new place as the mother in history. Um, she actually sold uh, printed business cards around uh, the Texas School a Book Depository for $5 that she would then uh, give her personal signature. She sold clothing of Lee's. She sold photographs. Uh, she, she used her position to, uh, to, yeah, to cash in. I think had I put some of those things that she told me in that first story, we might have had a better picture earlier of what kind of person Lee Harvey Oswald was and, and where he came from. I, I also came to the conclusion he was a madman. And uh, this was the work of a deranged person. But uh, certainly his mother was one of the most unusual people I, I ever ran across. I have stated publicly that I, in my own humble way and opinion, believe that Lee is an agent of our United States government. If you will analyze these letters that I have uh, read, and they are Lee's letters, his own writing, you will see that each and every letter assures me that he is in touch with the embassy in Moscow, and so on. And his very last letter says that he is going to arrive in New York, and he expects to spend some time in Washington. Now, I have no proof that he's going to Washington to report, but because I think, and I have the right to my opinion, and many, many documents to substantiate this right, that Lee is going to Washington for a specific reason. I cannot prove this. This is true. But I have stated, and will now close this interview with my statement, that I have enough circumstantial evidence in my possession to make me believe that Lee was working for our government, as the Dallas police has in their possession that Lee was the assassin of President Kennedy. Thank you, Kennedy. Uh, at first, I thought it was a conspiracy because the Oswald I knew was the kind of guy who was always getting accused of things he didn't do. It was uh, it just had a, a talent for getting into trouble. And uh, so it was like, uh, uh, and then a few days passed and the newspapers kept insisting that there was all this evidence that Oswald was the lone assassin and I, I, I believed them. I didn't have any reason not to believe the newspapers and the media in those days. Uh, Kerry Thornley was called to testify before the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy, known unofficially as the Warren Commission. Organized by President Lyndon B. Johnson, Kennedy's once vice president, the commission set out to investigate every aspect of the assassination and hopefully put to rest the conspiracy theories that blossomed in the wake of the tragedy. Kerry testified before the commission on May 18, 1964. He was pressed about his encounters with Oswald in the Marines and what they talked about. 
especially about Oswald's views on communism. Every moment Kerry spent with Oswald was meticulously analyzed, and Kerry's unfinished novel, The Idle Warriors, was entered as a legal exhibit. What was never asked was about Kerry's acquaintances in New Orleans, Slim Brooks, brother-in-law, and the other participants in night-long speculation about the hows and wherewithals of killing Kennedy. There was no mention of Kerry's well-received suggestion to brother-in-law about setting up a communist patsy. The only mention of the word brother in the testimony before the Warren Commission refers to Big Brother in George Orwell's novel, 1984. Right before the Warren Commission, I just, I didn't mention it. It was a, it was a can of worms anyway, because if I had mentioned it, it would have been incriminating. And uh, because I had wanted to kill Kennedy, the will on my part had been there. I just... Uh, Kerry deliberately chose not to reveal his relationships outside of Oswald. Or maybe the commission chose not to ask him. Kerry may not have wanted to get in deeper than he already was. But Kerry did have a conversation with Slim about Kennedy's assassination right after it happened. I asked Slim, I said, that weird brother-in-law of yours didn't have anything to do with this, did he? And he says, nah, he didn't have anything to do with it. I believed Slim. I believed anything Slim told me at the time. Uh, he was usually quite honest. Uh, and then time went on. And, uh, as time went on, Kerry was for a long time remembered only as Oswald's Marine Corps buddy. His name and novel entered into the public record, but they were ignored by sleuths and historians alike. His seemingly inconsequential testimony was skewed to paint Oswald as the lone nut who killed the president. A former Soviet defector angry at the United States and his contemporaries, who took this random and unplanned act to write himself into the history books. Little did Kerry know that this was not the end of his relationship with Lee Harvey Oswald. Oswald's ghost would shadow Kerry to the end of his life, and what occurred in New Orleans would come to haunt him. The incoming rush of the 1960s would change the United States and would be completely transformed by this one monumental act of violence. I am Andre Kodrescu, and this was The Second Oswald, a Ratapalax production, produced by Ram Devineni, written and performed by Andre Kodrescu. Audio engineered by René Veron. Supported through a grant from New York State Council on the Arts. All rights reserved. <laughs>